Sponsored by the UCD Innovation Academy. You're listening to An Entrepreneur Like You with Dr. Lolly Mansi. Hi, I'm Dr. Lolly, and you're listening to An Entrepreneur Like You. I'm an entrepreneur and a lecturer in UCD's Innovation Academy, and I teach entrepreneurship, innovation, and creativity. And I believe that entrepreneurs are both born and made. In this series, we won't be talking to the Elon Musks and the Richard Bransons of this world. We'll be talking to people just like you. Hi, and welcome to An Entrepreneur Like You for this, our December Christmas edition. I'm so excited about Christmas, but I'm also really excited about this theme because this is all about wonder and awe. And what a fantastic time of the year to be talking about this. And of course, we have the childhood wonder of Christmas and the awe and the excitement of all of that. But this is coming from a sort of a scientific basis for the wonder of awe, which is actually being looked at and explored by Berkeley, Stanford and different universities around the world that are looking at actually what happens in our brains when we start to feel that sense of wonder. Um, And I was reading this great article called The Science of Awe by Berkeley and I was thinking about it and they were saying that the science of awe really kicks in for us when we feel almost inconsequential. And I was thinking about that as Christmas rolled in and I thought, you know, the idea that we are a small cog in a bigger wheel perhaps and also the idea that we are on a rock made of stardust hurtling through space. And I just thought, what better person to kick off the Christmas edition than Neve Shaw. So welcome, Neve. How are you, Lolly? I'm Happy so Christmas. Good. Happy, Christmas Happy Christmas to you too. How yeah. exciting. And it so exciting. I had to get you a little earlier, so we won't fool the listeners, but we are recording this in November. And the reason we are is because by Christmas or certainly into December, you're going to be somewhere else in the world. So yeah. it was, we will just start with Neve Shaw. Welcome to an entrepreneur like you. And you are a space explorer amongst many, many other things and also somebody that dreams very big. And so Neve, where are you going to be at Christmas when this episode comes out? Oh, I'm going to be fulfilling a life ambition and I'm going to be at the Antarctic. I'm going to be on the Antarctic Peninsula. So it's incredible. Three years I've been planning this, so it'll be finally happening by the time this podcast airs. So it's it's amazing, Lolly. You know, it's amazing. It's like what you're saying about dreaming. It's amazing when you when you put those thoughts in your head and you just leave them there, yeah. but you don't get in the way of them. What can actually happen if you just leave that path just slightly ajar and then never letting the dream go? That's how this one started. You I know? hear that from entrepreneurs that talk about, you know, an, an, an aspiration board or a mood board, perhaps, or something yeah. like that, or pinning it up and just having a think about it and just leaving the, the possibility open. That's what you're talking about, right? The possibility that you could go to space, the possibility you could go to yeah. the Antarctic Peninsula, you know. So, well, let's, you know, let's delve right back to Little Neve. <laughs> yeah. How did Little Neve want, why did Little Neve want to become a space explorer? Did you ever think it would be possible? It didn't even dawn me that I couldn't. I love that's, that. Yeah. That's where it came from, you know, and I love that about kids is that kids just don't restrict themselves, you know, yeah. if as long as the circumstances, as long as they're rare, where, you know, it's, it's not too stressful for them. But for me, you know, space was like the most amazing thing thing ever in our house, you know, and it was the one time in our family where we all gathered and it was our one thing that we all did together, which was watch science fiction together and talk about the moon landings. And we talked about everything about that when when we would be at the dinner table. Mm. And so I remember seeing the picture of the Earth, you know, from a distance, the Earthrise picture, which was taken on Christmas Eve as they prepared to put the first two people on the moon. 
Oh, yeah, I, I, I want to see that when I'm older. Yeah, I'm going to see that when I'm older. And, and it just being a, yeah. a passing kind of thing, but always getting very excited about the notion of of, of space and, and science fiction as well. Science fiction definitely fueled it. But it never don't never. I never doubted that I could that I could do that. You know, it just but then it's very interesting then as you get older and how you start to lose confidence in yourself or because nobody else is doing it, you kind of go, oh, that's never going to happen. And so it, it goes into a different part of your mind, which is the, oh, I'd love to have been a part of space, but you don't even try. So you just have these stories, you know, that you kind of tell at parties. And that's kind of where it stayed. So, I mean, but I, when I was young, I wanted to write a children's book and own a sweet shop. <laughs> I haven't yeah. done either of those things because I parked them as childhood craziness or just ideas I had when I was a kid, you know, like I didn't go on to those things. So there, there must be something in your DNA or something more about you that, you know, we all watch Star Trek, especially the, you know, the William Shatner one, that early days one, you know, and we, and a lot of us would have lain there and sort of put, you know, little stars on our ceilings and thought about space and the world. And then we would have gone on to something else like horses or, you know, whatever it was, you know, so space became, did it become an obsession for you as a child or was it just always omnipresent? It was sort of always there, but I, yeah. I think the reason why I've gone for it is is that I, you know, I, I have this background in engineering and science, but also in the arts. And I think what happened was I was very surprised when I realised in my 40s that that it was still there. Mm. You know, so I was making my first theatre show and I was looking at all the different options of my life and I was looking back at childhood dreams. And one of them was to be a ballerina and another one was was to be a part of space. And looking at the ballerina one was fine because I'd yeah. taken dance classes, you know, with Kush game and stuff. But the astronaut one really surprised me because I realized I'd done nothing. I hadn't even taken an astronomy class. And when I borrowed the flight suit from the European Space Agency to make the show, uh, I was made to put it on and I felt deeply uncomfortable on it because it was a uniform. And I realized that I was disrespecting the uniform. And I also realized that I was all talk and I had done nothing. And it was sort of embarrassing. And the whole thing made me really go that's really interesting. Like it was sort of like it was this hidden part of me that yeah. I only saw for the very first time. And so what I did was it was sort of going to be just the topic of my next show. And I thought that it would go away. I thought, oh yeah, I'll I'll look at that and I'll and I'll pursue it and I'll talk to some astronauts and it'll go away the same way the ballerina dream went right, away. Right. But it didn't go away. It it became bigger and bigger and bigger. And it suddenly dawned on me that everything that I've been interested in and all the things that make me curious and all the skills that I have all lend themselves towards this topic of space and using it to inspire people to break down all their barriers they have around science and, and learning. And so it yeah. became everything. So interesting because that's then that, that's timing and that's almost like a almost like a tear in the fabric of the universe, you know, that you're sort of pulled back into it, right? So so to talk to me then about the earlier years again, because you've talked about the show and we'll come on to that, like, because that was your pivotal turning point, your moment where whatever it was that the universe, you know, grabbed you and went, hey, you, you're meant to be doing this, you know, and, and kind of you got that sort of sense of it. You went into engineering, but what kind of subjects were you doing at school? So were you encouraged into STEM subjects or did you naturally or gravitation towards them? You know, I was told very early on as a kid that I was going to go to college. So my parents, you know, they, they, I'm first generation college. So it was very yeah. important for them that we went. And it, and I felt, if I'm honest, I felt the responsibility of that. And it was a pressure as a child. I remember at the age of four, 
kind of going, oh, I hope I'm dead by the time I have to do my leaving search because I was so worried about it. <laughs> I, I think remember, that's a I fairly common having, feeling that you'd rather die than have a leaving search. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I really don't want to do the leaving search. And so that I remember that. I remember knowing that I'm going to go to college. So yeah. uh, STEM was everywhere. STEM was yeah. in the house. And so it was very easy for us. Um, how, was, how was STEM in your house? What was the background of your parents? Oh, well, dad just was interested in it. Like, so dad worked in um, an electronics company. I think he started out as a maintenance kind of got head of maintenance and he was always taking things apart and he encouraged us to do it. We had books everywhere. We yeah. watched a lot of science programs together. So they created an environment where science was every day. And in fairness to them, fair place them because they didn't grow up in houses like that. That was a yeah. plan the two of them had, you know, mum and dad had. And so it became, we were very comfortable talking yeah. about science. And, you know, I wasn't exceptional at maths, but I wasn't afraid of it. There was no barriers for me around learning that. And certainly there was a lot of support at home if I kind of ran into any difficulties or didn't understand something. That and history, they were everywhere. So yeah. it was normalized. And I think that's a massive thing that you can do for your children if you're if you want to break down barriers is normalize the areas that, that you want them to get involved in. Um do you do you have siblings? I do. I have um, three. And yeah. what did yeah. what did they go on to do? Are they engineers? Yours did engineering. John did engineering. Oh, they're all engineers. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, we're all engineers. Tom didn't. Tom went on, off to, to do carpentry. Yeah. But by the time Tom came, I think they were so exhausted with the dream. I think they were like, I think they were like, that's the thing that Tom came last and there was four years between me and Tom. And I think by the time I came, they were done. Like they put so much energy and effort into trying to mold us. I think, you know, the youngest just, they kind of let, as they say in, in parenthood, you know, by the time the the, the youngest child comes along, they let you juggle knives, you know, yeah, that they're just like, oh, sure. it's fine. But they had a very. It's almost like an engineering course. accelerator. <laughs> Yeah, it was. And so so they 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 really worked very hard yeah. on that, in yeah. fairness to them. I mean, I, I really like the idea that you've sort of taken that as, as sort of, you know, part of what your message is as well, is that you can you can create the conditions for a curious mind, right? And that's what yeah. you that's what you have. And that's you know, you've yeah. you've designed and crafted an incredible life out of that curious mind. But you can also incubate that and inspire that and you had that, so you're passing that gift on. I think that's incredibly an incredible homage to your parents really, that they put yeah. that time and effort in and you're taking on the baton of the torch to continue that work. I think that's 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 really remarkable. They must be very proud. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are. They don't say much. You know, they kind of don't. My family's funny like that. They're kind of, we never talk about what I'm doing. <laughs> Ever. That's a typical and Irish family this, though. Like, yeah, whatever, pass the salt. You know, so they'll keep oh, you grounded. Space, you know, so well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think the only time they were, they were at all kind of, uh, at all kind of making any comments was when I was on the late, late, you know, because that's the big one. Yeah. You know, that's the big, that's the big ticket. And and Tommy Tiernan. But yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I think every, that, that creating that environment kind of is at the core of everything that I do now, you yeah. know, so you're right. I mean, they inspire that. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. So, so you went on to college. So from school, you're studying STEM subjects. What did you study at college? Engineering. So, engineering, you know, yeah. you have a is you it common what first type year. of engineering. Is it just the general so first would, year? Yeah, yeah, general first year. And then you select. And so I really wasn't sure what kind of engineering uh, to do. I got into mechanical, but you can change. And I changed it over to biosystems engineering because it had a little bit more chemistry um, and food systems in it, which I which I, I was I'm always kind of leaned towards the planet and 
it was in there in some shape or form. So biosystems engineering prepares you for the food and the environmental engineering industries. So Could you I would explain have studied... a little bit about the difference between mechanical engineering and biosystems engineering for the listeners? Yeah. And for me. So mechanical engineering is, is so you, there's kind of three sort of formal types of engineering and everything kind of branches from that. So you have civil engineering. So that's all about building systems, the built yeah. environment. You have electrical and electronic engineering. So that's all about you know, the components, everything that needs electricity, whether they are power plants, right down to mobile phones, people would, if they're going to be an engineer doing it and they want to get into that area, electrical or electronic engineering degree. And then mechanical is like how everything works. And that can be mechanical as in that it's, it's, it can be powered by hand or powered electrically, or, you know, it's the heating and ventilation system. It's kind of everything and it's how everything works. And so, uh, they're real problem solvers, mechanical engineers. Um, and so you, I could have done that, but I kind of liked the idea of then adding in more of the life sciences. So yeah. biosystems engineering kind of tipped more into science as well as engineering. So it tipped okay. into a lot of environmental science, water engineering, water purification systems, a lot of agriculture and a lot of food. Right. So we did a, a lot of chemistry and uh, microbiology and agriculture, basic, basic agricultural science, and then a lot and kind of some basics around civil engineering as well. So it was a good degree for actually, you know, it's funny as I've been leaning more and more into kind of sustainability and and, and climate um, action. Mm. It's, it's complemented really well, you know. And then is there structural engineering as well? That's a fourth subset. That's kind of like civil. Yeah. That's like civil. You civil know? So you yeah. have chemi- okay. and chemical engineering would be kind of the fourth one. And chemical engineering is the is the production of pharmaceuticals, really. Right. So chemical right, engineering right. would be. Yeah. What did you do after that degree? So then I you know, I nearly left. I nearly left in third year to be an actor because all my life I've always been artist logic, artist logic. And yeah. While I liked engineering, I, it wasn't really something I always felt missing for many, many years. Something felt very missing in my life. And so when I finished my degree in engineering, I went traveling for the year. I yeah. really didn't know what to do next. And I came back to Ireland and I got a ma- I did a master's in the same area, all in UCD. And uh, I enjoyed that. I worked with a co-op, uh, Golden Vale Food Products down in Charleville, and I helped them source a, a detection system for their any contaminants in their food. And it was OK. I was OK. I was just OK at all that. You know, it was just OK. Yeah. Um, and then I started to kind of act then during my master's acting started to become a really big part of my life again. In performance. What was it that you were getting from acting that you were missing? The creativity. Yeah. Uh, mm, the self-expression, the joy, joy the freedom, yeah. the inhibition, the lack of inhibition, mm. you know, the the feeling that I could say and do anything. And I started then, around that time, I started getting into improvisation as well, which became a huge influence on everything, on my whole attitude to life. And that all kind of started around then as well. The improvisation stuff is really interesting because, you know, you're not going with a set script. You're kind of just, you know, on, on the cuff, as it were, on the fly, like kind of... Do you have the kind of mind that 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 enjoys that sort of challenge of sort of being out of your depth and then suddenly everything coming together? I love it. I yeah. think it's the act, the absolute core of collaboration and ideation and and working together in teams. A lot of the times when I'm leading teams or if I'm, you know, if I'm doing, uh, you know, I would coach people on communications. The very first thing is I would build teams by play. Yeah. You know, an improvisation of its core is play. And play has no rules. There is no wrong or right. And I think that's where 
all good ideas come from where you're not judging it and you're not under pressure to come up with a solution. Good ideas come from freedom. Yeah. You, you know, and I found that improvisation really helped me let go of the of my idea that everything had to have a beginning, middle and end and that <laughs> and that ideas sure. were finite and they were on off. Yes, no one zeros, you know what I mean? Black, yeah. white. Yeah, yeah, And of yeah. course, that's not... And, Everything's and so much the, more nuanced, absolutely. Much yeah. more nuanced. And, yeah. and the artistic process helps you remember that uh, in the engine. And it's the same in the engineering process and the scientific process. Yeah. But when you're in college or you're kind of doing your leaving search, you think the answer is yes or no, on or off. And it's an exact but that's number. That's because our education system uh, yeah. doesn't allow for the idea of of, of play and and experimentation yeah. and failure being a positive, right? Like, kind yeah. of, it's about there is that's one it. answer and there's a fact, and that's the thing you need to learn, and then you need to give it in this particular way. And the metric is that if you do it well, you'll get an A, and if you don't, you won't. You know, so we, we don't allow for that self-expression. And and the thing that worries me, I suppose, the most, and probably why I ended up in education as well, is that. Our education seems the system seems to actually go against the idea of developing and engendering curiosity, but it's yeah. curiosity that we need to survive, thrive, and flourish. So as we go ahead into a more AI-centered world, or, or, or maybe you know liaising more with AI, you know centric tech, the curiosity, problem-solving, critical thinking part is crucial. But our education yes. system now has got rid of all of that. <laughs> so these are the things that keep me up at night <laughs> of how, yeah. how and, to bring curiosity back and give it permission. Yeah. And, and the other thing, Ollie, is that you never stop learning. You know, there's this idea that it's finite yeah. when you when you do the leaving search, you think, oh, that's it. You know, then you do your degree and you go, oh, that's it. And of it's course, done. Yeah. that's a massive learning curve when you realize that leaving college should just be the beginning of your of your learning mm. and to always be learning and to always realize that you have to keep learning because if you if you don't, you're going to get stuck. And like you're talking about being an entrepreneur, you have to be able to pivot and you have to be flexible. Yeah. And you have to allow yourself learn. And I'm always trying to put myself in as in the rooms where I'm the least qualified because then I know I learn the most. You know? This confidence of sitting in a room where being the least qualified, but feeling that you you deserve a place at the table, which absolutely is correct. Like, where does that come yeah. from? I think um, life, yeah, learning. You know, having been terrified and thinking I shouldn't be there and realizing that it was the, it was the best, it was, it was the best experience, you know? So, you know, when I was making my theater shows, I felt very unqualified and I had to trust my director and mm. all the, the creative team around me because I really didn't know what I was doing. And, and we got there and, you know, yeah, we make mistakes, whatever, but I, I learned loads from allowing myself be terrified and and not try to dominate those rooms because I knew I wasn't the most qualified and you have to just give in and just go, okay, I don't know. It is, it's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. So, I mean, we all have imposter syndrome, uh, you know, most people anyway. And if you don't, you're probably a narcissist. <laughs> yeah. So you have imposter syndrome because for me, I think it's useful. It's it's fear-based to to, to pr propel you off, right? So it's useful to a point and then it can paralyze you after that. So let's talk then about putting the show together because, you know, you haven't quite finished your engineering. You're now doing a show. You've probably, you know, what you're telling me is a little bit of imposter syndrome around, I should, should I be here on stage? Should I be doing that? Was there anything in you that thought I could fall flat on my face and it's okay if I do? Or, you know, how did you sort of manage it mentally? Well, when I was very young, I, I found it very difficult. You know, I, I was acting 
but I didn't know how to access my own creativity in that. Like yeah. just performing was enough. So you're saying somebody else's words. Mm. So, so while I was still doing engineering, the work that I was doing was, you know, appearing in productions of Shakespeare or, you know, an right. O'Casey or something like that. And I was okay. Um, I realized now looking back that fear was a massive, a massive issue for me, a massive inhib- mm. inhibition for me. And so I felt like an imposter everywhere I went. I felt yeah. like an imposter in engineering. I felt like a imposter, yeah. an imposter when I was acting. It just, I never, it was like I couldn't take my coat off. It just always felt that I was close to the door. You know what I mean? And I was never, <laughs> I was too afraid to jump in, but I yeah. was there. So it was like torture because I wouldn't allow myself fully grow or learn, but I still wanted to be there. So it was, it was a, it was a time of great confusion and being utterly lost in where I was going. And I think that sense, I mean, there's a a huge amount of growth there, you know, in terms of I felt completely lost. I felt like I should sit, you know, I've got my back to the door. I've got my coat on. I'm going to be, you know, asked to go at any moment, any moment someone's going to discover that I shouldn't be here. And yet you stayed. (laughs) So, you know, there's, there's, that's where the resilience comes in. This idea of, you know, I I I actually prefer the word grit, you know, like kind of, it's just a bit of an onomatopoeia. It's like, you know, if you, if you can stay in a tight place, you feel uncomfortable. And if you can say, do you know what, this is, this is a room full of men and I'm the only woman or this is a room full of entrepreneurs and I haven't got my business off the ground or whatever it is you know to to be the the outlier um is a really interesting place and I think that sometimes something can occur certainly occurred for me where I actually started to revel in the difference rather but that came with maturity and that came through experience rather than the early stage of well I'm just going to stay here through the sheer neck of being here so do you remember when when that moment has shifted for you is it you know, could, could you could you name it? That's a great question. So when I saw the shift, I, I think that's a that's a great question. It, it's only recently. It's really only yeah. space. It was really space. It was it was discovering space. Everything changed. Everything changed when I finally allowed myself to pursue the thing that I really wanted. Everything shifted. Well, that's a perfect place for us to stop. Because I was just about to say, tell you what, you can have a think while we have the break. <laughs> but then you went, then you went ahead with it. Yeah. When when you discovered space, or when space and you connected in a in a in a in a, mm. in a tangible way, that's when everything changed. What a great place yep. to take a break, Neve Shah. I'll be back to you shortly. You're listening to Dublin South Radio on ninety three point nine FM. And welcome back to the second section of An Entrepreneur Like You. So just before we broke, Neve said it was space that was the changing part. Neve, tell us about that. Well, you can be lucky in life. And you can suddenly see yourself differently. You know, yeah. it's a very difficult thing when you're stressed or whatever, but sometimes you can just be in the right headspace where suddenly you go, oh, you know, you have an epiphany or I call them like a moment of clarity. And my moment of clarity was making that second show. So up until this time, I constantly felt in the wrong place at the wrong time that something was missing. Whatever career I turned my hand to, I just never felt, I just never felt talented enough either as an engineer or a scientist or even an actor. And I was like, gosh, am I just this mediocre person? But I had very, I knew I thought very deeply about things. Mm. And I I was always trying to f- 
figure things out. And one day I made the first show. I had basically been acting. I'd stepped away from academia completely in the early 2000s because I just felt I was so bad at being a scientist because I did a PhD in food science after I did those two degrees. And I just, again, I loved the research part of it. But when I actually went to become somebody working in the lab, I again was like, oh my God, this is terrible. You got a PhD. So what makes you think you're a bad scientist? (laughs) Because you don't get a PhD if you're bad. You get a PhD if you've worked and you've got to that level of academic prowess. So that's, that seems like negative self-talk. Well, I had three supervisors and they were telling me that I was a mediocre scientist, you oh, know, God, so, so that stuff goes in. Yeah. yeah. And I guess for them, my research was underwhelming, you know, and like it, it certainly wasn't groundbreaking. So I guess I, I kind of took ownership of that. Right. And so I just felt out of place there. You know, it just felt like I must be rubbish if this is the feedback that I'm getting. And so I started again acting. And this time something was different about my acting. It felt way more authentic and I wasn't afraid anymore to completely reveal myself. And I got started getting very good work very quickly. And I was living Mm. in Cork at the time. The line between amateur and professional, there was no line in Cork. So I started getting professional work and it gave me the confidence to go, maybe I should just try this for a while, maybe. And I did. And then, as I say, I was doing that for a while. And then I felt, oh, I'm just such a mediocre (laughs) actor which is silly. But then I happened upon a group of people who were very experimental and they loved the fact that I was this bizarre mix of science and engineering and and arts. And through working with them and doing productions with them, I got respect and people were very interested to see what I'd make if I got an opportunity to combine science and art. And that was my first show. Is it validation that you that you that you got there for, for I your... I think so, yeah. I think it was for, validation I was looking for. I think yeah. what they did was they made it, they actually said this is a good thing, whereas I was apologizing for it. They were like, no, no, this is an amazing thing because they yeah. got this amazing outlook and suddenly realized that this was a valuable thing. And so I started using it in writing theater shows to try and explain information that that people were asking me about. And a lot of people at the time were asking me about particle physics and this this uh, this Higgs boson and this God particle and stuff. Yeah. So that's what the show was about. Those kind of ideas make you question your own life choices. I won't get into right. it, but there's yeah. one particular theory that makes you think that. And so, like I said, I was looking at the outcomes of my life, the times I'd made these decisions to step away from science. And well, tell us a little bit about my... it. <laughs> Now yeah, you've, been, and, now you've and, dangled it in front of me. I want to know what it is. <laughs> so it, it, it was, oh, the, oh yeah. So the theory is called string yeah. theory. And so it's yeah. this notion that, you know, you, everything you see around you is made up of, of matter. Yes. And on a really small level, they're all made up of atoms and there's no difference in the atoms that make up who I am and the atoms that are in that microphone, so right. for example. But they have various numbers of, of subatomic particles. They have various numbers of electrons, various numbers of protons, various numbers of neutrons. And for a long time, we thought that that was the smallest thing. But then, of course, we were able to smash the atom. Right. And then this developed a whole new area of, of, of science called particle physics. And one of the theories that came out of that was, well, what if it's even smaller again? What if it's all about just energy vibrating in different directions? And, right. And the maths of that leads you to consider that everything isn't just existing on the third dimension. It's existing on much higher dimensions, which then makes you realize that if you had consciousness of those vibrating strings that make up who you are, you could direct your life in any way you wanted because yeah. life is about choices and you can see those choices from higher dimensions. So that's what the show was about. And so I was looking at my life from this 10th dimension, looking at my choices so I could easily, like like right. chess pieces on a board, right. I could change my life. Got and it. so I was looking at 
the woman, if I decided to stay on in the London Underground as my first job as an engineer, what would my life have looked like? If right. I decided to stay married, what would it look like? If I had had kids, what would it look like? If I had have stayed in the lab, if I had to become an, a, a ballerina, if I had to become an astronaut. Yeah. And so we made videos as if those lives existed. But the astronaut one, like I say, I borrowed this flight suit and I'm sitting there and I have this massive realisation that I couldn't be further from being an astronaut. And yet I could feel that it was it was the thing that I was most excited about and wow. most enthusiastic about. And I was like, oh, what have I been doing my whole life? How did I not see this? How did I not give this any energy? Yeah. And it was just like a huge light bulb. And that was it. I had this huge shift in my perception of myself. And this is an actual spacesuit. It's a flight suit. A so a flight, flight suit is like a yeah. boiler suit yeah. with Velcro where they have to put their name and stuff. Yeah. But it's like a uniform. You only get given those when you get accepted for astronaut college. You know what it must I mean? have been very exciting getting a loan of it. <laughs> it was amazing. And that was the thing. And it came in this silver plastic. I'll never forget it. Cool. You know, it was this incredible thing. And it, it was a, a very helmet? sad moment. I cried yeah. because I realized that that was the thing that was missing. Yeah. That was the thing that was filling me with this sort of feeling that life is pointless. You know, it was like this dumb feeling. Yeah. And then once space came into my life, it was like, ding. That's it. Everything made sense. Did you and go suddenly, home from that show thinking I should have been an astronaut or I need to be an astronaut? Was did it was it that developed or was it just I need to be around space or develop this more? This it was connection? at the time it was like it's very obvious to me that I'm never going to be an astronaut. Okay. It was like I've just wasted forty two years of okay. my life. That's what it felt like. And then it was very sad. And then I sort of went, well. I have to explore that because that's fascinating. Yeah. It's fascinating to have carried that around and to have always known, but to have been so afraid, to be so gripped by fear, I wouldn't even bring it into my consciousness. Right. It was in my unconscious self, but not in my consciousness. And so that's what had happened. It had gone from my unconscious to my conscious self. And so it was like, wow. And so I thought, okay, well, that's fodder for the next show for sure. Yeah. And so the next show was like, I really want to go to space. I'm fascinated with the fact that I didn't do anything about that for 42 years. Am I the only person who's that afraid to confront myself? Yeah. And that's what the show I thought was going to be about. And I thought, oh, if I talk about space and I talk to astronauts, it'll go away. But it didn't go away. It became, I realized that my point of view goes far beyond space. Yeah. It goes, to, it, it leans into how we define ourselves, what we want to do with our lives yeah. and, and owning your choice and giving yourself permission to live the very best version of your life and stop waiting for somebody to give you a degree or to tell you that you're enough or look for validation, yeah. which is what I was looking for. Yeah. When I first came across your work, um, I think it was, you know, under some sort of tagline or perhaps an article or something, which was like, I'm Neve Shore and I want to go to space. And yeah. I just thought, well, that's different because you don't <laughs> hear that from everybody in the world. But at the same time, also, there's something so embedded in that of like, why not me? And I remember you said that to me when we met. You're like, why not me? I'm like, exactly. Why not you? Now, at those times and still we can't, you know, the average person can't afford to fly off to space, even though Elon Musk would like us to, you know, um, in, in Richard Branson, perhaps. But, you know, the, the lay person can't go to space. So what was what was your next sort of port of call? What was your next sort of strategy around trying to make that happen for yourself? For that very reason. Yeah. That's what that's what interested me. It was like, why can't I go? You yeah. know what I mean? So it was about breaking the rules and it was about it was about saying we can't all be that top 0.5% 
of the right. population of these alpha alpha kind of types of people who are very high achievers with very high emotional intelligence and very talented and the capacity to learn at an incredible speed. But how interesting and how much. So we, we talk about space as if it's this clean white thing yeah. where everything is perfect. But that's that couldn't be more that couldn't be more opposite to what really it is. It's like trying to keep it alive, trying to keep people alive moment to moment. It's dirty. It's gritty. It's like living in a garage. It's loud. It's very hard on your body. Um, yeah. It's very uncomfortable. Um, it requires a huge amount of effort from thousands of people to keep one person alive. And that's a story that isn't being told. The yeah. story that's being told is about, oh, I'm an astronaut, you know. And so yeah. I felt as a communicator, <laughs> yeah, I felt as a communicator, we're not telling the real story of yeah. space. And so we're not really listening to how fragile we are as a species and how we are born for this planet and how yeah. we have to take care of this planet. And if ever there is a moment for everybody to share is to see someone vomiting and suffering and afraid and the least likeliest person to go to space has on people's opinion of space and like, oh my God, we're all worried for you. And that's where I want to go because if people see somebody who's not super strong and not an alpha, will that change our perception of our connection to the planet? And like, oh my God, thank God we've Earth because the second we leave Earth, we're in so much danger. Yeah, And and we're protected from that narrative. But that narrative is actually the truth. It's the truth. Yeah. You know, that's what fascinated me about it. It was that, oh, my gosh, there's so much education and and science communication around sharing that message. If I go as the least likeliest candidate, I'm a far better person to do that than somebody who just wants to be an astronaut because we know that story, but we don't know this story. We don't know this story. And so that's what kicked off everything. And what is everything? Tell us, because I I know little bits about your journey. I mean, it's been absolutely phenomenal, the life that you've created for yourself. Tell us a little bit about some of the chapters. So it's basically getting out of my way. Yeah. And just leaving the door open for I want to go to space and just leaving it there and finding opportunities to test test myself in, in extreme situations. So going on a, a zero gravity flight in Moscow, that just happened. Um, I had to pay for it. But, I mean, you know, um, I was working. Uh, I, I talked to an artist and, and he had done incredible work on a zero gravity flight with a bunch of artists. And I said, how did you make that happen? And yeah. he said, oh, I organized a blah, blah, blah. And then and he said, are you interested in going? I said, oh, yeah. I said, but I don't have the means or anything. And then he just contacted me to say that, that somebody had dropped out of another artistic um, flight in, in Star City in, in Moscow. And would I go? And I said, yeah. So that's how that happened. What is Star and City? Star City is is the training centre, the astronaut cosmonaut training centre outside Moscow. Okay. And so it's where all the, the astronauts and cosmonauts uh, train for the International Space Station. And then I got invited on a simulated Mars mission in the desert in Utah. And that really changed everything because that yeah. was so outside my comfort zone. And again, that came to me and I, and I realised... That when somebody is is not the right candidate, you come at it with a completely different set of eyes. It's almost like when you're a scientist in the field, like geologists and astrobiologists who go on these missions all the time, yeah. they kind of miss the stuff that an everyday person can see. Right, and right, so right. I was going in with that set of eyes and they're the stories that I told. And I found that people really got it and they really understood 
how uncomfortable and unglamorous space is. And I was like, I'm onto something. I'm onto something. I'm onto something. And so I've been actively seeking yeah. out other opportunities to live in the extreme. So, you know, I just came back in July from Africa. I was in Botswana working with a bunch of geologists again on a Mars in a, on a, in a dry lake, a Magadi Gadi salt pan um, in Botswana, because during the dry season, the, the formation of the of the topography of the of the lake is has similar um, characteristics to Mars dry lakes. And right. so this was a Mars analog. And I joined um, a bunch of scientists and we we lived outdoors for six days and six nights. Again, no water, no electricity, no toilets, nothing. And again, it's there's, a, there's an experience about living outdoors, yeah. but then it's like and this is to help us learn about space. So it's space reflecting back all the time to me about you can learn so much about yourself and so much about through how to take lens. better care of our planet yeah. through that lens. And so and then Antarctica has always I mean, the the amount of people that work in space who are just as obsessed about Antarctica, it's just there. That overlap is there. With <laughs> I, I never knew that. <laughs> people. Because it is like, you know, so there's these places in the world like volcanoes, yeah. extremely cold places, extremely all these extreme environments you'll find people that are also into, they're also kind of geologists or astrobiologists or there's these overlaps in planetary science and all these things. And 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 so we can learn a lot about surviving in space by, by living in these extreme environments. So I did the opposite. Yeah. I learned about what space would be like by living in these extreme environments. So I flipped it. Okay. Tell us a little bit about what it's like to live on a Mars simulation. What's that like? It's uh, It's familiar, but different. So it's kind of like, so you're confined. So, you know, you have to decide, you, you decide together what the what the construct of the experiment is. So you yeah. can you can take that simulation as far as you want. So we we agree together that on Mars there's no oxygen. So every right. time you go outside, we would we would use the supplied spacesuits. Right. Some crews did that, some crews didn't. We did that. We we would only live on the ration of food and water that we were given. So we were given two plastic drums of water, which was 200 litres, I think it was like 350 litres in total over 15 days among five people. Mm. Uh, so we only flushed the toilet for number twos and not number ones. We had freeze-dried food. Generally good advice and, anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we had freeze-dried food. And that's it. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah, what happens yeah. is that you learn these lessons about yeah. how to live more sustainably when you go back. So what was it like? It was like a bad family caravan holiday until you put the spacesuit on. You know what I mean? Like we all want to kill each other and it's raining outside and there's nowhere to go. But that's what it felt like a lot of the time. Yeah, But that's what science research is like. A lot of science research is this commitment to this rigor to conduct experiments. You kind of put yourself through these horrible situations where you're stuck somewhere for a sustained period of time to get the data. You talked to any scientist and yeah. it was it was kind of familiar to that trap feeling I felt in the lab where, right. you know, when I was doing my PhD, I was committed to getting this data. So I had to come in every day at the same time. I had to do these experiments. I did them thousands of times yeah. for it to be representative. And it was exactly the same on this Mars analog, except there was the added danger of the fact that we were living as if we were on Mars. So, there, so the criteria was more restricted. It kind of feels like you're making space unsexy. 
You're yes. demystifying it, I right? Am. So you're just I saying, am demystifying you know, you it. can't be Lieutenant Uhuru. You're basically going to have to be in like, you know, on a bad family holiday and like kind of stuck yeah. and like pooping and whatever. That's a, By the way, that's the number one question that everyone asks Chris Hadfield of like, you know, the toilet stuff, yeah. like obviously, yeah. you know. So so what's the response been, um, you know, so I've got two questions. Firstly, what's the response been from people that you that that sort of know you in the lay world to all of this, you know, do people go, ah, oh, that's neat. She's just off on her next mission or whatever else, you know, and they kind of take it with a pinch of salt, and you find your own missions. And then also, you say these missions come to you. Do you feel that that's because you're in a place that is a niche within a niche within a niche, or are you attracting them so through some other way? Do you think? I'm always looking for them. Yeah, I'm always okay, seeking yeah. them out. Yeah, and so I'm always looking for opportunities to work in places that would push me, you know, so I guess this is what I mean. I think I'm slowly starting to become an explorer of sorts because yeah. I'm looking for these. I'm looking for opportunities that I can explain something that to me is outside my realm of understanding. Mm. And I think people are I found again and again that people are fascinated and the stories that are reported are all the successful stories, but right. really do they talk about the day-to-day -day grind? Yeah. But actually the day-to-day -day grind is something we all understand. And it's like what you're saying, we're making it unsexy. But what I'm also doing is I'm bringing people closer to science. So people yeah, who absolutely. feel that science isn't for them or space isn't for them. What I'm doing is I'm bridging the gap and I'm kind of going, this is just like, you know, working in a garage as a mechanic. Right. It's just the power, you know, the, the, the parameters are slightly different. So there's nothing stopping you walking with me to this world and kind of going, that's just like being a mechanic and go, yeah, exactly. And so now this person's whole it. perception yeah. of I'm not this, I'm not the kind of person that can go to space. I'm not the kind of person that has the understanding of science. I'm not the kind of, suddenly going, oh, I, I understand that. And I go, yeah. You know, so I'm, I'm trying to find these pathways for people. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. I mean, it, it also you know, it must come down to community as well, because, you know, there isn't like a sort of an adverts.ie for space stuff. <laughs> so where no. are you going to find this stuff? How do you connect into it? Is that just through years of, of building a community yourself through LinkedIn or something? Or how does it work? I th I th uh, yes, I would say I do know a lot of people. But I think when I talk to people, I think people from the space sector are very are always very interested for the general public to understand what right. they do. They're yeah. very, very keen because they know that, you know, it's going to, it is a huge business and it's going to get bigger. And I think a lot of people working in the space sector are very enthusiastic about inspiring. It's a big part of, of why yeah. they do what they do. So opportunities kind of come. So if I ask for something, if it's feasible, they'll make it happen, you know, so... Yeah. You know, the European Space Agency very kindly made they made me one of their ESA champions. I didn't ask for it. They just made it for me. And it happened because I was asking them, can I do this or can I do that? And they realized I was doing something that was very different from what everybody else was doing. But they could see the the benefits in terms of educating people yeah. about what the European Space Agency do. They could understand the benefits of that. So 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 that was interesting. And then being made a fellow recently of the Explorers Club kind of floored me because I always felt like explorers are like people that climb Mount Everest right. or are scuba divers or whatever right. it was. And they're the people that get to become fellows. But they also said to me that they've made me a fellow because they feel like what I'm doing by demystifying the science and the practicalities yeah. of what it takes to do these things attracts more people to what it is to explore. And the scientific, always that explorers are always trying to understand and, 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 you know, really good expeditions have a science, um, 
have a, have a science objective always, you know. So you, you really bridge, you, you know, you found your niche in, in bridging that gap then, I suppose, between the thing that you find fascinating and sort of the, the hard graft of actually what that's like on a day-to-day basis, the reality of the sort of the unsexy stuff, but also then finding a way to, to package that so that people understand it and can tap into it on a human level. That's, that's basically your yeah. niche, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it's, but it's been, it's not been like, Ooh, brainstorm, brainstorm, you know, no, business it's, strategy, it's, it's five-year plan. It's yeah, been yeah, yeah. organic and it's been mistake after mistake, after advice, after mentorship, after somebody pointing something out, after looking at something and go, oh, that's what I mean. Or hearing somebody and go, oh, that's kind of what I do. And just, yeah. I would say my business is, is like sellotaped. It's like a, yeah, it's like a, 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 a a kind of an ideas board with post-its and wallpaper and pins and carpet and all sorts of weird things kind of pinned Bits together. Of that, yeah, you know what I mean? Food and, sure. you know, leftover pizza. And it's just this yeah. mess of, of stuff that's kind of come together. A but, melee, but that's perhaps. Kind or of, a, yeah, some sort of, yeah, yeah and, exactly. But, and, but to me, that is where the improv comes into play. Like, yeah. you have to let yourself go. It's okay. That's how you figure this out. You thrive in the mess and, of and it. Yeah. You th- it's, I don't, I am, I hate mess, but, but I realize yeah. that the authenticity is in the mess. I absolutely love this. We're going to take another short break. And when we come <laughs> back, we're going to find out where Neve, the space and global explorer went next. Everything's fine on 93.9 Dublin South FM. Well, welcome back. So let's hear about this last little bit because I know that things really accelerated. So we've got, you know, you've got your 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 amazing work and then all of a sudden the late, late show, Tommy Tiernan, a book yeah. and now Antarctica. Yeah. How yeah. did all this yeah. occur? Um, God, it's, um, how did it all occur? I think around 2017, 2018, um, the whole platform of human space exploration suddenly started becoming of interest in the general public domain. Yeah. I was sort of on that zeitgeist. I didn't plan it. Honestly, I didn't plan it, but it just sort of happened. And so, and I think the fact that I'm I'm a good communicator, I think it, whatever way I talked about it, it seemed to kind of um, peak people's imagination. And so I got to, I, I had this opportunity, um, you know, I, I, I work with people all over the world involved in space through the, the studies that I that I completed at the International Space University and then went on to become a, a global faculty member. And and from that, in 2018, I was asked to speak at NASA Johnson on an on a cross disciplinary wow. industry uh, conference thing. And yeah. and I just I would always kind of just throw it out, you know, and, and tell people what I'm doing. And the late late just thought this was incredible. And just the story of, you know, the 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 flight suit and the the zero yeah. gravity flight and the simulated Mars mission. People had heard about this. And so they just thought it was really interesting and they just wanted to check in with me about how my progress is going. And so that's how the late, late happened. And then Tommy Tiernan was actually recorded before that, I think. And, and they were, they're always just looking for people that he couldn't possibly know. Yeah. And so uh, yeah. one of the researchers had come across me. And okay, so th- that's how that happened. And that was a really interesting conversation. And then the book, I have been constantly asked since 2014 to write a book. And again, that thing of like, I wouldn't, no, 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 no. Being too afraid to do that yeah. and not understanding why anybody would ask me that. And then I met, I met a guy, a commissioning editor, and he just said, I've listened to you speak so many times, Neve, and you 
are bursting to tell your story because you're just you're, you're telling yeah. your story in segments. And I was like, am I? And he goes, yeah. And I and so he was from Mercier Press at the time. And he said, I, I really think you should write this. And I was like, I just don't know how to try it. And he goes, well, just put down just to put together even what you've written already because you've written blog posts and everything. And yeah. so he just made me feel safe. And I, and I remember saying to him, look, at it, if it doesn't work, will you promise me that we're not going to publish it? And he goes, yeah, I promise <laughs> you. I'll tell you if you have a book or not. And yeah. so they gave me a very tight deadline and I suddenly found that I had to write this book. And that was absolutely terrifying. And then I had a really good editor and they just put shape on it and really strict my God, I had yeah. to have it done in no time. Like it was terrifying. But you couldn't ever think then, it then. So it's done. Yeah. It's just, and then it's done. Yeah. And then it comes out to pop. The only terrible thing is that, you know, after all the work and everything that we put into it. And um, unfortunately, like a week after we went into complete lockdown, the very first one was actually the day of my publishing. But it was yeah, going to be my publication date. I remember, that. Date. I remember yeah, and seeing it was, it was on in. That. Hodges and Figgis and we had the whole thing and it was great and then bang, didn't happen. So so the book did okay, but I'll never know how well it would have done in, in general. Sales, and your book's you know? called Dream Big and still available for yeah. anyone who wants yes. to get it. And that that timing, yeah. you know, of course, of the launch and then the shutdown, like kind of, yeah. <laughs> again, I was going to say the launch, like I'm starting yeah. to use space words myself, that's the effect you're having on me. The uh, book you know, launch, yeah. The launch. book launch, yeah. So, so you know, that that's very interesting because... Because this is all of this path has, you know, so perhaps again, you know, with this almost like a sliding doors idea, you know, of the idea of well, yeah. had the book been bigger, another life could have occurred, you know, yeah, and exactly. this sort of string theory. So tell us about Antarctica, because you're going to Antarctica with postcards and quilts and what's going yeah. on there? What are you doing? Well, again, I'm looking for these experiences. So around 2018, I heard about Homeward Bound Projects, an Australian initiative for bringing women in science to the Antarctic. Uh, to experience firsthand the devastation of climate change on the landscape and to kind of a leadership program as well to get them to step up and stop having this imposter syndrome, mm. which I, I'm clearly kind of working on still. And I really liked it. And they want to bring they want to do this for a thousand women over 10 years. So Incredible. bringing 100 women every year. And so I applied and I got into the sixth cohort. And again, um, we started an online training program and in 2020 and we were supposed to be sailing in November 2021. But of course, I started the program, bang, lockdown. And so we did the online program and that was the end of it. And then I didn't think we'd get to the Antarctic. But then thankfully, last December, they said, no, we're going again. So my, yeah. ourselves, Homeward Bound 6, Cohort 6 and 5, they've just left uh, the port in the last few days. And we're, we'll be leaving port on Sunday for a 19-day voyage from the bottom of Argentina to the Antarctic Peninsula. And we stay on a boat together for, for that time. And we work intensively yeah. on uh, self-development, self-awareness, uh, clarity of message um, and committing to, uh, to, to ourselves that we are going to have a strategy when we get off that boat to uh, communicate climate action, bring it into our work even more. And not only that, all our plans, like my plan as a communicator to get to space, all of that. Yeah. And also to work together as, as a team of women um, to help each other and also work on projects uh, across the globe because the women are from 18 different countries. What so an incredible initiative. Yeah, it is. And and uh, going to the Antarctic was, is, has always been a life ambition. I'm hugely inspired by Tom Crean, who is an yeah. unsung hero of so many uh, uh, expeditions. We could talk about him for the whole, um, you know, yeah. uh, podcast with you. 
And so there are so many boxes being ticked. But it, but I'm kind of working twice as hard, I think, as everybody else, because as because I'm a communicator and um, some of the women are already working in the climate action space. Yeah. Uh, so they they got funded to go or some of them are full time lecturers or whatever. But I'm a freelancer. So I had to set up a crowdfunding campaign and I've been like vigorously fundraising for the last year. And I got a number of, of kind of key sponsors as well. And so for those people that have supported me, I want to do something when I'm there. So they're all going to get a postcard from the Penguin Post Office. So I've been <laughs> scrambling for addresses and everything. Wow. And, and and then also... Um, You're better Elish than County Santa. <laughs> I know. And, and so Leash County Council, I've worked with them before on a climate action plan for the town of Abilix. Yeah. And one of the things I created for them was an interactive walking uh, tour using, you know, about climate action. And we created these animations and the current environmental officer at Leash County Council was so inspired by those animations that she based them on teaching resources in the classroom for kids. And so I approached her and said, will we do something about Antarctic? So then I'm doing this education program in partnership with Leach Education Centre when I'm there, as well as uh, other schools that I said, if you send me something, I'll take pictures of it. So loads of schools from, from the Leash area have sent me like bracelets and crests and uh, pictures and little toys and so there, I'm going to bring them with me and I'm going to take a picture when I'm on Could the you snow. imagine and then, how much stuff you'd have to take to space? <laughs> oh my God, yeah. And then these women, these women in Gory, these crafters, I was on the radio and I said, I really want to work with a group of women uh, to make something that I can bring. And they made this quilt honouring all the women from our history who, oh, who blazed lovely. a trail yes. in science. Yeah. You know, the Manny Maunder, you know, Jocelyn Bell Burnell, all these people. And they made this amazing patchwork quilt and so I'm bringing that with me as well. But Neve, you do realise that you're part of history <laughs> rather than history now. You know, you really are. And like, I was going to say that, you know, when I'm when I'm talking to you, I feel like I should say, you know, as I'm wrapping up now, watch this space. But again, <laughs> it's not just about <laughs> space. And I can't say anything now because it just seems like I, you've got it inside of my head. But I... I Absolutely love this conversation and thank you so much. And, you know, you're not just a space explorer, not even just that. You're an explorer of, of the worlds and the many worlds that we have. So I wish you the best luck in the Antarctic. Um, and so. uh, you go with all of our blessing and we'll raise a little glass to you over Christmas because sure, you'll still be there. Thank you. Neve Thanks, Shaw, Sally. thank you so much. This is Dublin South FM. Well, it was so lovely to hear from Neve. But as this theme is about awe and wonder, I wanted to introduce you all to my daughter, Edie Rose O'Brien, who's <laughs> going to close out for the Christmas period with an essay that she wrote on wonder for her school at the Institute. Edie, would you like to share with us your essay? Yeah. I think the main problem I face in life is the balance between excitement and wonder. I strongly believe that these are two different things and the balance between them is difficult. When I was growing up, Wonder was my main act. I grew up with the nickname Georgie from a very specific show about an extremely curious monkey. I didn't know exactly when the change happened from Wonder and Excitement being one and the same to Excitement overpowering my need for Wonder. But I do know that getting myself back to the point of curiosity for fun is a vital mission. I was four years old when I first realized that I truly existed. I'd always distinguished my friends and family as them and myself as me. Once I came to the conclusion that them and me were both the same with the same thoughts, emotions and similar desires, my entire world changed. I noticed that my reaction to a situation was often similar, if not the exact same reaction as my peers. No matter how different our backgrounds were, we both felt sad when we were told off and happy when the break time bell rang. In the following years, I learned empathy and acceptance, and I came to a new, more logical conclusion than I had previously made. People are different and think differently. Even if we were both sad when we got into trouble, it could be for completely different reasons. This sparked an interest in me for what I later learned to be psychology. Psychology always caused both wonder and excitement for me. 
partially due to the fact that I could now understand people's actions, and unfortunately, partially because it made me sound smart. Nothing was more intriguing than learning about our own natural biases and our need for company as a human race. I could predict how someone would react to a situation with relatively good accuracy, and I felt intelligent. I was determined to pick a career in either neuroscience or psychology, and I believed that I had it all figured out. Of course, I was nine at the time, and my dreams were soon crushed when I was introduced to the need for money. I moved on to science, aerospace, engineering, and planes. I wanted to be an astronaut, pilot, engineer, and nobody could stop me. You can fit 1.3 million Earths into the sun. One third of your taste buds are lost while traveling on a plane, and there are 1,300 reasons why being a pilot or an astronaut would be absolutely awesome. My father didn't want to pay for fancy college, and I was much too blind to operate a moving can of metal through any amount of air. For the second time, my dreams were crushed. It seemed that all the exciting jobs were either too expensive, too difficult, or much too hard work. I hit 13 years old, and COVID-19 was the new fascination of the world. We did our research on viruses, on symptoms, and on when the controlling arbitrary rules would finally give us freedom. I stopped wondering about the future, and I stopped getting excited for the next day to come. One morning, around six months into the hellscape that seemed to never end, I gave up on curiosity entirely. The society we live in is based on mindless scrolling and not questioning the world around us. I quit reading and I started watching Netflix. I stopped playing instruments, previously one of my main interests, and took up listening to music for hours and hours until the sun fell. The moon, previously something that struck me as beautiful and intriguing, became something I stared at numbingly, trying to stay outside to prevent living in the confinement of my own room's four walls. COVID ended and the curiosity never came back for me. Wonder was no longer a priority. As a teenager, finally out of captivity, I had one goal. Do the things in life that give you a dopamine hit the fastest. I stopped thinking and started doing. The most exciting things were often the things I did not have to wonder about. I partied, I spoke to people with absolutely nothing of substance, and I surrounded myself with bright colours, loud music, and not one single thought. Eventually this caught up to me. The excitement of skipping class, doing essays last minute, and speaking back to authority caused my world to crash around me. Seeking excitement caused me to become a person I absolutely hate. She was boring, she was mean, and most importantly, she had no motivation to do anything beneficial unless it benefited her. I came home halfway through the school year to find my mother in the kitchen waiting for me. I had failed one-third of my junior certificate mock exams, and the school had sent a letter home. All of a sudden, I realized that the fastest fix of dopamine often caused the fastest crash in happiness, and lacking substance has severe consequences on my life. Picking up the pieces led me to the latest conclusion. People act similar, yet differently to situations, but the way you act is not based on a predisposition. Instead, it's the active choice you make to react in a certain way. Successful people, like astronauts and neuroscientists, are not always richer or healthier than the average person. They simply made choices that led them in that direction. Linking wonder and excitement is now a big priority for me. I encourage myself to do a little bit of both. I still go out and have meaningless conversation. Realistically, what is a 17-year-old with doesn't pointless gossip? This time around, however, I made sure to counterbalance it with conversation with someone more educated than me or a book to improve my knowledge on a topic. Not only is this fascinating, but it sparks joy and excitement. Learning something new is not something I dread anymore, but something I look forward to. Interlinking both wonder and excitement has proven easier for me than I once thought it would be. Traveling is something that makes me incredibly happy and also incredibly curious. The sky still leaves me dumbfounded by its sheer vastness, and planes flying by still warrant a smile and a point from me. The balance act of growing intellect and aiming high, whilst also enjoying life and forbidding it to blow past you without harnessing the simple joys, is what leads to an achieved person. It's what, if one focuses too much on their work or too much on their pleasure, I don't believe they will truly know what they're capable of. I am happier doing both. 
and the difference between wonder and excitement gets less significant every day. And that is what truly excites me. And to all my listeners, a very happy Christmas and a wonderful new year.